Welcome to Web3 with A16Z, our show about building the next generation of the internet from the team at A16Z Crypto. That includes me, your host for today, Robert Hackett. This show is for anyone, whether creator or developer, company leader or startup entrepreneur, policymaker or everyday internet user. Today's episode is the second installment of a limited series we're running that's tied to the release of the new book, Read, Write, Own, Building the Next Era of the Internet by Chris Dixon. The book explores the power of blockchains to reshape the internet back into an open network for fostering creativity and entrepreneurship, issues that affect us all. The book also goes beyond crypto and blockchains to cover intersecting technologies such as AI, social networks, marketplaces, virtual worlds, and more. You can find out more about the book on readwriteown.com. Today's episode is a conversation between Chris Dixon, author of Read Write Own, and founder and managing partner of A16Z Crypto, and Stephen Johnson, a prolific author who is now working on AI tools as editorial director at Google Labs. The two discuss what motivates their writing. They explore the emergent properties of decentralized networks, and they dig into how the internet has changed from its origins to today, as well as what's ahead. The episode begins with the interview and segues halfway through into an audience Q&A led by Stephen. As a reminder, None of the following should be taken as business, legal, investment, or tax advice. Please see a16z.com disclosures for more important information, including a link to a list of our investments. Hello, everyone. We're really excited to have this conversation. I am Stephen Johnson, author of a number of books about technology and innovation and uh, co-creator of a couple of podcasts and now uh, working on a project at Google called Notebook LM. And I happen to be a longtime admirer of the work of Chris Dixon. I remember reading his blog posts in the early 2010s about a number of themes that he and I have a shared fascination with. And I wrote about Chris's thinking on blockchain and Bitcoin in a Times Magazine piece about five or six years ago, deeply influenced by his work. And so I am delighted that he has taken all this insight and transformed it into a book, Rewrite Own. But uh, we're going to have a conversation here for about an hour. I'm going to kind of lead the discussion, talking a little bit about the history, Chris's history, our shared interests over the years, get into some of the arguments in the book, talk a little bit about the future, obviously. And then about halfway through, we're going to open it up to questions to everybody in this webinar. So let's get started. So let me just say, Stephen, I just want to thank you for doing this, by the way. And you've been a big influence on me. And I think I think I've read every one of your books, I believe. Oh. And for those who don't, if you haven't, you should. And I think my favorites are How We Got to Now, which is amazing, which is sort of like five technologies and sort of the history and all the crazy stuff that happens. Enemy of Mankind. Enemy of all mankind, yeah. Pirate Book is amazing. Emergence is sort of, a, I think, in a lot of ways, a precursor to a lot of my thinking, at least, of sort of bottoms up systems and how the internet works. Anyway, so just a little plug there. I think most people probably know your work, but if you haven't, you need to read it because it's some of the best technology and history books you can find. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. But let's focus on your book. I want to talk a little bit about the connection yeah. to emergence, so we'll get to yeah. that. But I first want to start off just with your public role as a writer. It's been a big part of you. You were an entrepreneur. Now you're kind of the founder of A16Z Crypto. Yeah. So, you know, your kind of day job for the last whatever, 12 years has been as an investor, as a VC. But you've always written, you've always had a blog, and you've written a number of kind of interesting think pieces. You know, the piece that I that I wrote for the Times Magazine about blockchain was heavily influenced by things that you had written at the time, a bunch of which show up in this book as well. Tell me about 
that process, like why was that writing arm of your... Why didn't? And, and how would that compare to writing an actual book? I think it's better. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd written a little, I'd, you know, in college, I'd studied philosophy and written and stuff like this. So I had some back, I wasn't like brand new to it, but um, I started blogging, I think 2008-ish or something like this. And it was sort of early social media time. And I thought it would just be kind of fun and interesting. And for the first year, I don't think anyone read my blog. I think, you know, it's like doing it. Uh, I don't know why, because it was fun. And then I used it kind of as a, um, I, I used to have it as a, like a personal challenge, like every week, like what did I learn? It's sort of like a learning in public kind of thing. And I will say, you know, it, look, I attribute a lot of good things that happened in my career to having blogged and written publicly. I think in some ways, I thought I was at the kind of frontier of what would be inevitably just like everyone would do it because it's such a good career hack, like, because you just can immediately build your profile. And I think for some reason, like people obviously tweet and everything else, but I, I think more people should be writing. I think there's a lot of really smart people in lots of industries and fields, and they just probably have a lot more to say that would be interesting and sort of medium form, long form blogging. So anyway, so I did that for a long time and then I got kind of just, you know, whatever life, life distracts you and work and everything else. And so I sort of slowed down. And then, I, you know, I, I've always been of the school of thought that like the stuff you write like has to be a book. It's a narrative history. There's a lot of detail. I think a lot of business books don't need to be books and they're done for kind of status or something else. Right. I mean, like sort of like seven pieces of life advice, this kind of stuff. Right. And so I always just didn't think about writing a book for that reason. I was like, why, why write a book when it can be a blog post and just be much more economical? I think with this topic, I finally came to the conclusion after spending years and years trying to evangelize it and convince people and having mixed success that it's just required context. And so, you know, you've read the book, like I would say the first third of the book is sort of the history of the internet with a specific focus on like how the power and money flows on the internet. And I would call that part uncontroversial among tech veterans, among internet veterans, but not widely known in the general public. But you need to know that, that like the internet's a network of networks. And the thing we do as entrepreneurs and investors on the internet is we build networks. And that there were sort of two great ways to build sort of grand, designs for building networks. There were protocols like the web and email, and then there were kind of corporate owned networks like Facebook and Twitter. And so you need that background knowledge because what blockchains, my argument is blockchains are a new way to build networks. Yeah. And, and if you don't have that context of that historical context, you would sort of say, well, why does that matter? Right. And so I just found that I just finally came to the conclusion that there's just no way to kind of properly do a treatment of this without writing a book. And so hence the book. The thing you're going to find I think, yeah. which is really striking once you start having that experience of talking to strangers who have read your book, yeah. is that the commitment of time and yeah, it's a focus lot. and it's a big commitment to read a book. Stuff, you know, you just don't get to like have uninterrupted yeah. one-way conversations with people for 12 hours or however long it takes to read yeah. a book in any other context. And so they have this enormous, you're just able to develop an argument and build the supporting infrastructure for the argument the way you do so effortlessly in this book, I think. But, you know, it requires a lot of time to make that kind of case. But then if it works and if they really yeah. need it, it's yeah. an amazing it must be. Yeah, uh, you tell form. me. Yeah. You were telling me the other day that sometimes you have people read a book from 20 years ago and it's like they're mind melding with you from 20 years ago, which must be kind of an interesting experience, right? It's interesting because they remember more about the book than I do. I mean, yeah, that's I the weird thing. And then yeah. the thing you did in chapter three, and I wrote it. Chapter three. So, thinking about books that, that I wrote 20 years ago, one really fascinating theme of Read Write Own that connects to this book, Emergence, that I wrote in 2001, 
that's a, something we both thought about a lot is the connection between those networks, particularly decentralized networks and cities. And that metaphor, you've got a bunch of quotes from Jane Jacobs in this book, which I loved, and she's a major yeah. figure of emergence. When I kind of first got on the web in the mid-90s, everybody's kind of looking for the metaphor. And it was kind of this battle between like, is it a super highway? <laughs> is it a library? Or is it a shopping mall? Like those were the kind of competing things. And so the element that I tried to do in, in emergence is say, let's think about it like a city and think about like, what are the things that make cities work and how can we apply those lessons to the, the web as we build it out? And it, clearly that way of thinking has been very helpful and, and it's been kind of re-energized by the developments around blockchain. What is yeah, it, yeah. metaphor that's generative to you? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I do quote Jane Jacobs. I didn't go too far. I thought it might be kind of pretentious to do too much Jane Jacobs, you know, but- <laughs> That didn't yeah. stop me. <laughs> but, but no, no, I mean, you maybe for me to do it. I don't know, but not for you. But I did at one point read, I remember reading Life and Death of American Cities, which is, you know, one of her great books. And then I read Power Broker, which is a great book too, Robert Caro about Robert Moses. And I think it's a good pairing because they're kind of two poles, right? Robert Moses is top down. It's sort of like, let's demolish this part of New York City and put a highway in. And then Jane Jacobs is actually, for those who haven't read it, it really is just worth going back and reading, especially the, I think the first couple chapters of her book. It's great because she builds up the life of a city from first principles from a street. You remember this eyes on the street concept, Stephen? Yeah. yeah so it's like the, the whole thing of like you kind of walking down a New York City street and you have this intuitive sense, it's a good street or a bad street. And that intuitive sense is based on eyes on the street. There's some people sitting on a on a stoop. There's a restaurant, you know, with glass windows. There's a barber shop, right? And that there's a sort of this network effect on a street where you have, you know, the public sidewalk encourages the barber shop to open. And she has this whole argument about why then you want mixed use neighborhoods, right? Because you want residential mixed with commercial. Because then, like at nighttime, you have the nightclub that has eyes on the street, and the daytime you have the people. It's a very elegant kind of bottoms up argument for how you get these emergent properties of cities and like what makes it great. And so, like it, for me at least, like kind of maybe coming from an engineering mindset, it was like, wow, that's a really interesting, strong first principles argument for all of these different urban design principles, right? Now, of course, there's another great tradition. You do need highways. You do need the BQE at some point, maybe. And that's where Robert Moses comes from. Maybe not out. all of it. Maybe not all of it. But like he just bulldozes and like, you know, and there's all this controversy around it. And the other neat thing about cities, right, is there's a public-private dynamic, right? So you have the park and the sidewalk. Like, I think we all intuitively, people that live in cities, get that you need both, right? That like, we probably wouldn't want the city to create the pizza shops, right? It's nice to have the variety of entrepreneurs that create different restaurants, and all the things that entrepreneurs do, right, with the kind of creative innovation. But you wouldn't want entrepreneurs to run the streets and the parks, maybe, right? Like Gramercy Park is always this controversy in New York City because it's locked, right? And like you feel like parks should be open. But they encourage each other, right? Because the open street then gives the entrepreneur foot traffic. Then they pay taxes. And so there's this interesting symbiosis between public and private. And I do think of that very much like in the case of the Internet, where I think now we have these five giant Internet companies that have crowded out a lot of the public life. Whereas to me, the web and email and a lot of the early internet protocols are much more like public goods, much more like parks or something. And I'm not like anti obviously corporations and entrepreneurship, but I think the balance has gotten way out of whack. So that's why I use this analogy of theme parks in the city in the thing, because it sort of feels like it's this big controlled, you know, we're in Facebook land and not in, you know, on the web anymore. That's what concerns me directionally from in terms of how the internet's evolving. Yeah, I think that was the thing that people who are younger than certainly than, than I am and, and even younger than you probably don't realize is that there was this extraordinary feeling 
when the internet kind of emerged, particularly when the yeah. web emerged on top of the internet, of like, wow, there's this like global technology that on some fundamental level is a public space that nobody really owns. Yeah. And it's supporting all these things. And it, it was the first thing that felt like the sidewalk of a city or a public park of a city that that had come in the form of high technology. Everything else had been kind of like, well, here's a box that I bought. Here's my radio. I own it or some company made it. And so that was, it was very liberating. And I think it's important just to get our definitions right in this conversation. Like you talk about these protocol networks as being foundational as opposed to corporate networks. And you kind of alluded to that in what you were just saying. But a lot of this whole book and the argument you've been making for a long time revolves around like the transition from the protocol network age to the corporate network age. Just give us a kind of quick overview of what that transition really meant. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, if you were using the internet in, let's say, the year 2000, 90% of the time you spent would have been on these protocols, like the web and email. I mean, that's what people did. You might have been using something like eBay, you know, or some other kind of, you know, GeoCities or whatever was the popular kind of quote social network at the time. But most of your time was on this sort of public space, on the open internet, which meant that if you went to a website, for example, and the website built an audience that the website had a direct relationship with that audience. They could choose to make the website free. They could choose to charge. They could choose to run ads. They could do whatever they want. And that created the conditions under which, you know, entrepreneurs had incentives to build things on top and kind of planted the seeds in some ways of its own demise, right? So it it created the conditions under which Mark Zuckerberg and all these other entrepreneurs were incentivized to go create companies because they could build a direct relationship, because they could own their little plot of land, their domain name, their website. But then, of course, that architecture of having these networks be owned became the dominant way. So fast forward today, probably it's close to 90% of people's time now is spent in Twitter and TikTok and Facebook. And very little is actually now clicking out to the browser. And in fact, I think it's a little bit frightening, but like all of the social networks now are actually punishing you for putting links in your tweets and your posts. And I think we're going to see kind of further siloization of the internet. And so to your point, like, look, I think it was a wonderful kind of I don't call accident of history. There was planning and things, but that the internet evolved in that open way. And there were, by the way, alternative versions of it. There was, you know, AOL, there was Microsoft and Comcast had their sort of information superhighway. Like, I think of it as it was inevitable that we'd link computers up. It wasn't inevitable that we'd link them up in this open way that that happened. And if you remember, Stephen, folks on the call might be too young, but there were all of these books, Clutran Manifesto and like a hundred other, you know, John... Uh, Perry Barlow, the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. There was this whole kind of feeling of like, almost like a 60s counterculture revivalism of like, this is going to usher in a new era of freedom and creativity and create, you know, direct relationship with your audience and Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans. And look, I... I, I Those were the days. That was our Woodstock. I bought bought into it. Maybe I'm just like nostalgic for the old days, but I thought that was a great vision. And I think we've lost a lot of that vision. I think one of the key questions today as we sit here is, is it over? Is it just like the internet's consolidated, you know, and this is it. And like other forms of media, like broadcast TV, you know, you end up with four channels or something or, and I believe this, I think the internet is designed to be, it's a software-based network that can be reinvented. New software can propagate and software is a very plastic, malleable medium. I think it's more like an art form than a engineering discipline. I think the optimistic view is like we're 30 years into something that's probably of the import of something like the printing press. And there's a long way to go and we can affect that outcome. And shouldn't we have that conversation? I mean, that's sort of what I'm trying to conversation I'm trying to participate in through the book. Yeah, I love it. The story I always love about the printing press is that it took them 100 years to figure out they could build an index. 
Is that right? Is that right? <laughs> it was like in a hundred years with the book, and they're like, "Oh, actually, it's really useful if you have a little you could, where you can look up and page numbers and so." Hundred, like imagine that a hundred <laughs> years, it's like, a long time. <laughs> so, you know, the kind of lovely way of encapsulating the the different phases that we've lived through, and I, yeah. I want to turn to the to the phase maybe we're on the cusp of involving the blockchain. You talk about the read era which you said was kind of defined by the website for exactly the reasons yeah. you said. You had your own website and you could do whatever you want with yeah. it. The read-write era, which is the kind of social media post where you're posting something, but it's on somebody else's corporate network that is controlled by someone else. And the entity extracting value from that post financially is this corporate structure that you're not playing a part of. And then this new era, the read-write-own era, coincidentally the same title as your book, which is defined by the token, you say. So what does that mean? First, the read and read-write part. In fact, those are not my terms. In fact, there was, during the 2000s, sort of two competing terms for what was going on. One was Web 2, one was read-write. And there was, yeah. in fact, there was like a very popular blog called the Read-Write Web. There were conferences, just so people know. And the idea was that in the 90s, so this is other people's ideas, in the 90s, the internet was sort of what I call skeuomorphic, which whenever a new form of media comes along, it often starts off kind of mimicking an older form of media, right? So early films were just sort of film plays, right? And then they established kind of a native grammar of films with close-ups and establishing shots and all that. So the early web, if you go back and look at Internet Archive or something, you'll see they were like brochures and catalogs. They were read in the sense of like, for the most part, it was about consuming information. Occasionally, there's like a submit button or a buy button. But basically, it was a, the big impact on society in the 90s of the internet was democratizing consumption of information. You could type in Abraham Lincoln and immediately read about Abraham Lincoln or something, whatever. In the 2000s, the sort of the movement became, how can we democratize publishing? And so that was the rise of social networking and blogging and all the other. And that, of course, worked. And now we have 5 billion people who post and everything else. And then, of course, my argument is, I believe and I hope we're on the cusp of a new era where using blockchains and networks designed on top of blockchains, we can now have read and write and also introduce this idea of kind of digital ownership that blockchains enable. Each of those visions is very, like, think about the vision of the web, they're very ambitious. So the vision of the web, the original vision of the web is we're going to have all the information in the world connected together. Okay, like that's overwhelming. How does that not become a jumbled mess? So one of the many genius ideas behind the World Wide Web was the website was let's have a little unit of information, right? Let's bundle it. I call it it's encapsulation. I have a section about this. So you encapsulate this complex idea in a simple concept. I, I liken it to the plug socket, right? Mm -hmm. So you had power going through all the houses and buildings, and you have this very simple interface. And that interface, you know, initially you could just plug in lights, but eventually you could plug in washing machines and everything else, right? And so this idea, so you encapsulate it in the website, and the website made this otherwise unmanageable, unwieldy, overwhelming idea into something that was sort of manageable. In the social era, we have the concept of the post, right? That the post is the unit of publishing. And then my argument is in the blockchain era, if it evolves the way I hope it does, the token plays a similar role. It's a unit, a simplifying unit of encapsulation. I make that point because I think there's a tendency when technologies start off for people to confuse the 90s, you go look at websites, you're like, oh, that's that thing you have for brochures. But really, you're not looking at it abstractly enough. If you look at it abstractly, it's a container of information and code. You could then start to see what might happen 20 years from now. In the same way, I think with tokens, like right now, people look at them and they say, oh, that's a PFP avatar. That's some silly thing. That's a Bitcoin. That's whatever. But actually, it's a very general abstract concept. 
which to me makes it exciting for entrepreneurs and others who want to take that. What can you do with this? You've got this website, like imagine all the cool things you can do with this atomic unit of ownership, right? That's what gets me excited about this, you know, is the idea that this is now a new kind of canvas, right? For creativity. I think your explanation, like a lot of people, when I was kind of observing Bitcoin kind of taking off, I interpreted it entirely as a digital currency. It was just yep. a way of buying things and, you know, without some kind of fiat authorization of it. And then I saw it as like a zone of speculation and people were just, you know, yep. it was a tulip mania kind of thing. And it was really your writing and a, and a few other folks like Fred Wilson and Brad Burnham and folks like that who, who were in that Times Magazine piece that I wrote. It made me realize that there is something more profound at stake here or possible here. And it's not just a kind of currency, but it's really a whole platform that might enable us to reconstruct some of the great things about that early open protocol era, network protocol era. Could you describe what you would say are like the kind of core technological advances that we get out of blockchains and tokens that could help us get back to that? To that yeah. I think of a blockchain, the key thing that we do with blockchains, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin, you can look at it as a financial service, you can look at digital gold, but I look at it as a network. It's a network, it's a financial network, right? A network in the sense of like, there are Bitcoins, there are people that could have the Bitcoins, it connects them all through this network. And it's a network that has no company behind it. There's no intermediary. It's a community-owned financial service, right? And to me, what a blockchain enables is community-owned digital services, essentially. And of course, that, you know, as we were just speaking about before, connects back to the early internet, because that was the original promise of the internet, that you remove these intermediaries. I think it turned out that the network designs of the 90s just simply weren't powerful enough to keep up with the needs of the users. The users wanted more features and they wanted more things. And the corporate network stepped in and gave it to them. And I have this whole kind of chapter on RSS. RSS was a very important protocol because it was the kind of last attempt to keep the web open and specifically social networking, right? If RSS, RSS is still around, people use it for podcasts, things like this, but it's in the, you know, maybe millions, tens of millions of users, not billions of users. And that's very important because had it succeeded, social networking would have a very different architecture, very different economic system. And so to me, what blockchains enable is a new wave of digital services that allow communities to own, sort of get the upside, own pieces of it, control them. And those services can be financial services, or they can be games, or they can be social networks, or they can be new things we haven't thought of. And that's actually in the last section of the book, I take seven areas and try to go deeply into those seven areas, or pretty deeply. It's a, you know, limited pages and things, but go in and very specifically talk about those kind of application areas. But I, I see it as a very generalized new technology for building new networks that are owned and operated by communities and remove those intermediaries like companies. And the the token is the, you can't have community ownership without a way for communities to own, right? They need a way, a mechanism, and the token is that mechanism. Yeah. One of the things that I always found so captivating about this vision is this idea that when you create a new network that starts to take off, if the network is a kind of corporate controlled network, let's say the Facebook model, the value created by it in terms of the financial value is captured by the founders and the early investors, basically. Mm -hmm. The vast amount of it is captured by them. You know, users get presumably other kinds of value out of it, but they don't see any upside in terms of actually dollars that they get for being a part of it. And in and the vision that you know you've put out over the years and you talk about in this book is is this kind of this more 
kind of blurring the, the edges of the people who get to yeah. stake in a sense in the firm. And I know proof of stake is an actual term of art in this world. And so it's not, yeah, the people who come up with the idea in the first place yeah. are going to succeed, but it's early people who build on top of the platform are compensated in tokens. And if those tokens go up in value, but also early users, like just people who are using the service. So you kind of imagine this world, I think sometimes you use the example of Uber, a world where like, both the founders of Uber, the, the investors in Uber, but also the first drivers in Uber, the first customers of Uber, like all those people, if Uber really took off, they would all benefit from this yeah. and have some financial incentive for it taking off. And that that feels like a very appealing way to do these things. And I guess my question has always been like, couldn't you do that somehow with existing shareholder architectures? Like, what is it about blockchain that makes that easier to do? Yeah. To your first point, it seems fair and reasonable that most of these digital services that we use today are networks, and most of these networks are built by communities. And it seems reasonable that the value that's created would go to those communities. You could, in theory, like there have been moves to do this. Like, why could you just without blockchains? There have been moves to do this. So, and I talk about this in the book, like Airbnb and Lyft did programs where they gave some stock out to some of the drivers. And I think those are great that they do that. It was a matter of scale. I believe those were all like in the low single digits percentages. And if they were to do, like maybe there's a mechanism, you'd probably need some regulatory changes and tweaks. And if they could do that, I'd be all for that. I think it'd be great. So I'm not like opposed to that. But I think, first of all, there's a very different ethos in the blockchain world where like the norm is greater than 50% of the tokens go to the community and if not significantly more. So there's just like a different kind of mindset. There's other very important features that I go through, you know, in each chapter in, in the book. It's not just about the sort of token distribution, but it's also about take rates. So like what percentage of the revenue that goes through the network is kept by the network operator, the sort of the central entity yeah. versus go to the edges. So there are ways you could probably mimic some of the, like basically I argue in the book, there's like four or five really important positive benefits of blockchain networks. And there probably are ways, to your point, where you could have a law that says no social network can charge more than 1%. I mean, you could do things through legal mechanisms that might mimic some of these things. I don't see much political momentum there. And maybe you could sort of try to mimic it. And like, if they did, maybe that would work. So I just want to ask you two last questions on, on yeah. my end. One of the things you talk about in terms of uses at the end of the book is how kind of blockchain intersects with AI. Yep. which is obviously, I don't know if you've heard, but it's an interesting new technology <laughs> that seems... I hear, I hear it might be big. It's going to be the a big kids are really into it, apparently. Tell me how you think about that. I thought that was very... Yeah. Kind of I, have two, I have two sections of the book on AI. Maybe I'll do the first one more quickly, which is deep fakes. So I think you have all these problems now that are going to arise where you have problems verifying that people are real, that videos are real, right? Because you can now, I think it's probably obvious, use AIs to create big videos to emulate people. And so the obvious natural way to solve this is through some kind of cryptographic audit trail. Then the question becomes, well, where do you store that audit trail? You really need a reputation system. So like, it's not just enough to say this video is real. You need to say something like the New York Times attests to the fact that it's real. You need somewhere to store those attestations. And is that going to be stored by Facebook or is that going to be stored on some kind of community shared database, which is another word for a blockchain? Oh. So it just seems to me like a pretty obvious thing to do would be to have community owned records of the provenance of various pieces of media and some kind of certification system for authenticating people and just all that kind of stuff. Right. So that's just 
for people that there's a lot of emotion attached to blockchains and a lot of people are like, just won't consider them for their emotion. But I think if you just step back and look at it dispassionately, it's an obviously better way to, to do that. The second one I talk about in AI is a little more nuanced, which is, you know, I think of the web as having, there's sort of a implicit economic covenant on the internet between content and distribution, meaning websites, graphic designers, news websites, et cetera, and distribution, meaning social networks and search engines. And that implicit covenant is that the distribution is allowed to take that content chop it up, index it, and show snippets of it, let's say, in search results. But the trade is they're going to send traffic back, right? That's the sort of covenant that's developed over 30 years, implicit covenants developed over 30 years. It's the potential of new AI systems is to break that covenant by simply giving the answer, right? If you take the data, the information, process it, and then just tell me where 10 good restaurants are, maybe you provide a link back, but no one needs a link because no one clicks through it because they get the answer. And by the way, I'm pro that world. I think it's it's a better solution for the users. AI is a wonderful thing. I'm pro AI. But like in that world, we need to think about, well, what is the new covenant between content and distribution? Because I presume we don't want people to stop creating things and we don't want people to stop getting paid for creating things. And by the way, I don't think the AI wants that either because the AI needs that you know, new programming languages come along, new genres of art, new genres of music. Like you want all of that stuff to be input. So we need to rethink the covenant. And my argument is that the perfect way to establish that covenant is a blockchain. One way to look at a blockchain is it's a economic negotiating machine. It's a collective bargaining machine where lots of, you know, a million small parties can get together, set terms and do deals with a few big parties. And so then I kind of walk through ways that might work. It's up to entrepreneurs to build it. But that's just one other kind of interesting thing is how do we pay content providers in a world where content creation, probably the cost goes to zero for a lot of types of content. All right. I'm going to hold off on my final question. I may ask it at the end, but I want to switch it over to some of the questions that are coming in from folks on the call. So one of them come from Sandy. The question is basically that the space changes so quickly yeah. as I think basically happened from yeah. when you like, you know, hit, hit Sandy. Well, well, you know this, even the, the book industry has a longer lead time than I'm used to on the internet. It's puzzling, isn't it? So it's been in October. The reason that is, is I've subsequently learned it's that like, to make a book successful, a lot of people have to read it in the production of the chain of it, right? You have to have like reviewers read it. You have to have book buyers read it. You have to have all this stuff. And like all those people have a stack of giant books there. So you were like, but can't yeah. we just print it and send it to the stores? And it's like, no, we need reading. Uh, like the like the blurbs that took me uh, to, yeah. uh, to get the, yeah. the, the back of the book for those folks who don't like, I had to send it out to those people, give them time to read it, you know? Yeah, but we're um, used to just like, hey, I pressed... The actual, you're right. It's not the actual printing doesn't seem to take, I don't know. It yeah. seems like it's all the other stuff, but um, it's a good question, Sandy. I tried very hard to write the book to be a little less time sensitive, I guess. So like I mentioned a few startups as an example, but I try to minimize it partly because we're regulating compliance and I don't want to like be promoting portfolio companies, but partly I just want it to be something that's a little bit higher level abstraction so that it, like it was a very hard balance, like make it concrete enough that it's not too abstract, that people get it. And I'm using real life examples, but I didn't want to be too specific because the world does change very quickly. I was worried specifically with the AI stuff that it might change. I did do a few last minute changes in like October or something, but actually I feel pretty good about it right now. Then knock on wood, two months from now, some dramatic thing happens and everything yeah. changes. But right now I feel like I wouldn't change much since October, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. Ages. So Rob asks, how likely do you think it is that these new blockchain networks will actually be able to usurp today's giant tech companies? For example, I'm in music. Can we realistically expect the masses to adopt something like collecting music yeah. at 
as an alternative to Spotify. There's a, in enterprise software, they have this phrase, greenfield, brownfield. It may come from somewhere else, but the basic idea is, do you go after new use cases or do you go after old use cases? Like, for example, Excel has been around for 50 years and there's all these modern things and Excel is still really, really popular. A lot of tech just has a very long shelf life. So it's very possible to your question, maybe the music industry is just so recalcitrant or obstinate or whatever word, or just calcified or whatever word you want to pick, that it's just not going to change. But there will always be new things. It's a good question. Like when I speak to entrepreneurs, like I think it's a key question. Like, do you go after things that are already entrenched, like social networking? Social networking is already a thing. It's already big. Or do you go after something new? Like one of the exciting areas I talk about in the book is collaborative storytelling, which is the idea of communities getting together and creating narrative worlds and getting rewarded with tokens and evangelizing those narrative worlds. And like, that's just a brand new thing, right? And maybe with music, maybe it's not music per se. Maybe the actual playing of music is finished. But music is one of those things where there's all these interesting adjacencies, right? Like, why can't music be like video games where video games, I think about it as used to be they charge for the video game. Now, most video games give the video game away for free and charge for all these complimentary goods like virtual goods and other things. And maybe that's the future of music. Maybe it's not just something so literal, like you just replace Spotify with something else. Maybe it's a new genres of music come and they decide to embrace, you know, digital worlds and virtual experiences and use the music as a complimentary good to get you to do something else. You know, I don't know, but that's a great question. If, if you're an entrepreneur, you want to think about that. Do you want to go fight the last war or do you want to try to fight the next war with this new technology? I always think about like YouTube. When they started, there were all these other video sites that were taking like CBS and NFL content and trying to license it. And YouTube said, we're just going to put up a website and the people that are going to become big on YouTube don't exist yet, right? which is, was kind of crazy and ambitious, right? I mean, it was like kind of Stripe used to say this when they first raised money, like people ask who your customers are and they say, well, they don't exist yet. Like yeah. that's the really ambitious thing is if you say, who are the musicians that are going to use NFTs? and do all this crypto stuff, maybe they don't exist yet. Maybe the genre doesn't exist yet. We've got a long way to go in the next 100 years of the internet. And also, it's not even just the musical genre that could open up. It's like, I mean, I think of, it could be that Spotify, et cetera, remains a place that the mass release of the song yeah. lives, but it's like the Grateful Dead bottle of like, hey, there's a unique performance of this song. Yeah. I think that's... You know, if you could, all those Grateful Dead tapes, and I'm not a deadhead at all, but I know of their like, model, all those tapes circulating, if like they actually had some kind of unique value, and this is the one time the song that was played, and we're going to release this one recording, and I don't know, there might I be- I think a, that's very, yeah, look, that, it already happens today, right? Like if you ask musicians, they tour, and they make a lot of their money touring, and why do they make their money touring, selling merchandise, is because they don't have an intermediary. They can sell direct. So maybe that you have sort of, as you just described, even like a digital tour kind of thing, you know, where you're selling merchandise and it's a complimentary thing versus trying to take on Spotify directly, which seems much, much tougher. I'm going to pitch you guys about this idea. I'll, I'll be showing up at your offices. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> That's a good one. Sounds, I'm uh, excited. Okay, let's keep going on. Harry from Teleport asks, how do you hope the U.S. regulatory framework develops so that the U.S.-based Web3 startups can thrive? That's a great question. Yeah. So I think of it as part of the book here. I, you know, I talk about this idea of the computer versus the casino and sort of the vision that I'm a proponent of, of blockchains. And then what I think is a more speculative side, which I associate with meme coins, some of the meme coins and FTX and things. And like, I just have come to believe, and I think some people in crypto will disagree with me, but we just need to have some regulation that tamps that down. One, mainly it's bad for consumers and everything else, but I think it's also just crowding out the positive use cases of the technology and really hurting public perception and a whole bunch of negative things. So 
And I think the other thing I would say is that a lot of what's going on now is very reactive. A lot of it's playing out in courts. I think, by the way, it's happening in AI, too. You have the New York Times open AI case. There's going to be a lot of reactive things. I would like to see a more proactive approach so that like, what I'm hoping to do with the book is start a conversation about the positive use cases of the technology. And I, the way I look at it is you can use a hammer to build a house or destroy a house. Yeah. And then a smart policy approach is to look at the technology holistically. What are the good? What are the bad? What's the good of AI? What's the bad? What are the good of blockchains? What's the bad? And how do we design the policy to maximize the good and minimize the bad? There's lots of specific proposals around there, like lockups and time periods and other kinds of things. But I think the key thing is this sort of, ideally we have like a, I mean, this means it's incredibly naive, but like a respectful, reasonable discussion. Of course. <laughs> That's probably absurd, but uh, my fantasy world, we'd have a discussion and try to come together and think about how to maximize the good and minimize the bad. And I I, like, I think things like lockups and time periods and just various safeguards can go a long way. We see that in other financial markets or financialized markets. So there's a question from Paul here that I'm going to kind of insert my question that I wanted to ask at the beginning of this and then continue on to Paul. So Paul's asking, how do you see adoption of Web3 playing out over the next year, three years, five years? The thing I wanted to ask you is like, in terms of that, that most kind of compelling vision that we discussed before, where you have a new kind of protocol that's developed and a new kind of governance system and a new kind of cooperative profit sharing model that emerges out of it, where it's not just the founders and investors, but it's the early adopters and users and developers that participate. What is happening right now that is the most encouraging example of this that's on your radar? Yeah. Like, where can we see the seeds of that? I know it hasn't fully come to pass, yeah. but like, what's the most promising thing right now? And then turn to Paul's question, like, where do you see this in three or five years? I mean, I think there's a lot of great communities. Like, I think the Ethereum community, for example, is very, it's a very strong, generally very positive community, very tech forward. If you go to the forums and other things, like people talking about technology, they're generally positive and idealistic. They've done a lot of really good work around the core infrastructure. I think that has progressed a lot. So a lot of it has been, you know, sort of these infrastructure kind of layer things, like Ethereum to me embodies a lot of the best ideals. There's the area of DeFi, which is decentralized finance, which, you know, I think things like Uniswap are very interesting where they, it's, I think, 65% of the tokens of the kind of ownership of the protocol have gone to users. They were one of the first ones to do what's called a retroactive airdrop, where they gave out 15% of the tokens to past users based on their use of the protocol. And there's all these great stories, like this classroom in Turkey that used it, and they all got, like, all these tokens. And and so, you know, people can debate whether or not they like finance and the applications, but I think in terms of how these communities were built and the value shared, those are very positive examples. I think there's a bunch of interesting kind of emerging NFT communities. Someone had asked earlier about music. I think there's some interesting things happening around the music NFT space. Like, I think, I just think creators, to me, the creator use case is just such a powerful one with all of this because creators have such a bad deal on the current internet that it's just from a business value proposition point of view, going to somebody, ask a typical small musician who's not a big famous one, how much they make on Spotify and it's just yeah. de minimis. Yeah. And so if you can go to them and the bar is relatively low to really improve their life. And so even like in the downturn, for example, this year, I think there'll be a couple billion in volume of NFT sales. And this is in the low point, which is still <laughs> actually meaningful because the existing social networks are so stingy. 
Look, I, I do think that I wish it was going faster and I'd like it to go faster. And I think in some ways, some of the casino kind of stuff distracted both us in this world. And then, and then that also led to, you know, this regulatory reaction, which is also just kind of made things more complicated. You know, you mentioned Ethereum there. I just wanted to raise one question you talk about in the book. So Ethereum, people on the call may know, went through this transition from proof of work to proof of stake, which had a big impact on energy consumption. And I think that's one of the other big criticisms you hear from people who aren't in space as much, that it's just not sustainable to have all these computers crunching all these numbers to generate these transactions. Can you speak to that critique? Yeah. So there's two main ways to do, you know, blockchain mining or validation. And those are proof of work and proof of stake. And proof of stake is 10,000, 100,000 times less energy consumptive than proof of work. It compares favorably to traditional non-blockchain computing, right? And so it kind of removes that objection. Now, in the book, I take the position that I, look, I just have come to believe proof of stake is better. We have a team of computer science professors who all would argue very strongly that it is better, not only from an energy point of view, but from a security point of view and a kind of game theoretic and attack vectors and everything else. So I've come to believe it's just strictly superior. The Bitcoiners are religious about proof of work mm-hmm. and, and argue, and like argue with some justification that you can use clean energy and other things. And so they already don't like the fact that we're kind of proof of stake. But I, I just think, look, this is something where, yes, you can use clean energy and everything else, but this is just a strictly superior thing. And it just simply removes that objection and let's move beyond that. And that's my view. But Yeah, great. So another listener, viewer named Amy reports that she loves your writing. Can't wait to read the book. So that's good news. You, Amy. Wondering if you cover the FAT protocol thesis. And what your thoughts are on business models for user-facing Web3 applications? Do they need their own tokens? How can new protocols incentivize developers to build apps for end users? So I think it's a great question. It's a really complicated question. I think one thing we've learned over the last 15 years is that tokens are very powerful and can be overpowered in a way in that you know, I think we've seen with some of the games and maybe arguably with Bitcoin and other things that they make people, you know, it's sort of the, it's the ring of power or something like, it's like people get obsessed with them and the, watch the price go up and down. And what Stephen was asking me about before, it's very powerful, the idea that you can share part of the upside of a service with users. So I think obviously, I mean, I have a bunch of sections of the book about token. I think they're very important, but I also think they're kind of, there's a real risk with a lot of these services and we've seen it play out that people just only focus on the financial aspects and it really crowds out everything else. I think there's a new wave of that we're involved with of builders who are thinking very thoughtfully about how do you kind of introduce tokens, but do it in a way that significantly dampens the kind of speculative aspects. And so, for example, one obvious thing is you have a big movement now is what they call points or non-transferable tokens. You have tokens, but for some number of years, you can't sell them or buy, you know, buy them or trade them. And it's just, you've got to wait until the service is popular and there are mil- hundreds of millions of users, and then maybe at that point, they unlock or something, right? I think that's a really interesting direction and one that we're encouraging. So that's one of many kind of ways of what I would call financial dampening. I think game developers, for example, a lot of them are trying to build games that are inherently popular and fun, and then thinking about tokens as a thing you can layer in to create kind of an interesting peer-to-peer economy. So people have like the virtual goods and Eve Online is doing a blockchain version where the, you know, it's a spaceship world where the spaceships aren't just created by the company. They're now peer-to-peer spaceships and you have an economy. But again, you got to be careful because if it's just all about the money and the tokens, you you bring back the casino, right? It's better to have an OP thing, an overpowered thing that you dampen 
than the opposite, which is something no one cares about. So right. I feel like we're, I'd rather have that problem, but I do think that they need to be, that people have to be really thoughtful and think about ways to really tamp down on the speculation. Cause it's, I mean, look, it just created a lot of damage and it's regulatory backlash and, and crowding out of real innovation. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. John asks a question that I don't understand, but I'm just, I'm, well, <laughs> where are we in the development of L1s and L2s? And I would like to add, please explain yeah. what it is. So, L, so yeah, so yeah. it's layer one and layer two blockchain. So like Ethereum's okay. an L1. And then there's things called like roll-ups. There's like Optimus and Arbitrum that are L2s. And the, the basic idea is, think of it as something like a coprocessor, like your GPU. Mm. So stick with that. So it's like okay. CPU, GPU, not going into too much detail. The nice thing is you can run it on the L2, but know that you have all the security guarantees of the L1. Is kind of the idea with the real roll-up. And I would say, John, knock on wood, I think we're there in the sense that roll-ups, you know, for those who've been around, we had plasma, we had sharding. I think roll-ups are clearly the answer. And like all of my smarter colleagues who do technical engineering stuff feel like that too. So I, I feel like we're there. Now we need, of course, like data availability and 4844 and all that stuff. But like, I think this is it. And I mean, and then we're like very close to having like no trade-off scalable blockchains after having traversed a seven-year idea maze or whatever as a space. So. So Heather asks, do you have recommendations to get smart and stay up to date on the biggest concerns people have about crypto, like environmental, regulatory, bad actors? Like, what are the best sources? Yeah, I do touch on all these topics in my book. So that will be up to date as of the yeah. writing of the book. I don't go super deep on all of them. I mean, look, we try to do a lot of this on our blogs and podcasts and stuff, too. And then there's various groups like Coinbase and other industry participants who put out stuff. But to be honest... I mean, that's one reason I want to write a book, because I want to just kind of package yeah. everything together. It, it's a lot. It's kind of all over the place. Okay. I think this is not a bad place to kind of have some closing thoughts. So Dak Goswami, Goswami, Goswami says, you know, we've been drawing these parallels. We've kind of started by talking about the 90s web development. And so his question is, how do we map onto that trajectory? Like, where do you, where do you think we are compared to the way that the web developed in the 90s? Is it 1992? <laughs> is yeah. it, you know, 99? Or is it post-bubble kind of? And then also, since blockchains haven't had an AI moment, do you think the Apples and Googles of the world would take the biggest share of blockchain tech as happened in, in mobile? Yeah, the mapping, you know, it's always as hard, this sort of history yeah. rhymes, but doesn't repeat, and it's always different. And you know, the internet is interesting. Like, if you look at it, they had had a pretty consistent user growth over time. The problem it had was no one thought it was a real business until, like, maybe Google's IPO in 2005. So in some ways, it had sort of the revert. It was, like, under-financialized in a way. It's almost in some ways the inverse of blockchains where there's clearly there's a business model. The question is, is there utility? And with the internet, it was clear there's utility. The question is, is there a business model, right? So I almost think of them as Funhouse Mirror or something. I think you could also look at it through the lens of there's always this sort of aha moments in these evolution of tech. With the internet, it was probably Mosaic, the first browser. With smartphones, it was certainly the iPhone. With AI, you know, 80 years of AI, 1943, McCulloch and Pitts, right? 80 years later, ChatGPT, that was the moment. So, yeah, and we haven't had our kind of iPhone ChatGPT moment. And so that's another lens to look at it through. And like, when will we have it? I I've been somewhat humbled in my timing predictions in tech. Um, I feel like I've been directionally right on the things that happen. I think I've been very, very hard to predict when things will happen. Like, I think we're getting close, but I sort of chuckle. I also thought AI was going to happen. I, I started an AI company in 2008 and I was like, it's about to happen. And I was 
10 years too early. So I don't know. It's hard to know. Like there's so many factors that go into the timing of these things. Like, cause there's like the underlying tech and sort of Moore's law and chips getting better. And in our case, blockchain's getting better and L2s, but then there's like, when does the right application come along? When does the right cultural moment come along? When does the right entrepreneur come along? And it's these complex feedback loops, right? Yeah. So it's very hard to know exactly when it will happen, but it does feel like we're kind of headed that way. And in the conclusion of the book, I have sort of regions for optimism, which is sort of a number of kind of trends that I think are very positive. I, I have a kind of final question for you, really, which is more about your method and your kind of workflow. So yeah. in, in trying to make sense of what is happening in this enormously complex space with all these different players, both in blockchain world, but just understanding the path of technology over time, like, do you have a routine for like how you get the information, how you th to, like think about the information, yeah. like what's, what's just what's for learning your, about tech, like, tech. Yeah. Like what's your kind of like workflow for understanding the world? <laughs> I mean, like I, I have a rarefied job, which is I, I mean, the answer is I mostly talking to people, but I am in a fortunate position where I get to talk to smart people because I just find like, you think about it, like if I get to meet with an entrepreneur, what I'm really getting is like a package of like, it's in the same way a book packages up 10 years of knowledge and 200 pages. A meeting with an entrepreneur is packaging up years and years of hard-earned knowledge in an hour meeting. I actually have a rule. I read 50 pages of a book a day is my mm -hmm. kind of personal rule. It's just like my protein, so to speak. I try to really focus on books, primary sources, meaning like watch somebody who actually did something speak or, or write, reading books, speaking to people. And I try to minimize sort of secondary sources, a little bit of social media, but not like overdoing it. It's very easy to kind of just get all of your information passively and then just sort of follow the consensus. And that's, if you're in my business or in the entrepreneur business, you need to be in the non-consensus business. So you need to be very judicious about curating your, your mental inputs, right? Otherwise you'll just fall into the, I call it the kid's soccer problem. You know, you watch professional soccer and they're all like staying in their position. And then in like venture capital, it's like the kid soccer where there's like 22 people around the ball. And like, you just, it's not, can't do, can't make money in venture capital if you do that or be a great entrepreneur if you do that. So you need to be very thoughtful about how you curate your input sources. That's great. That's good advice. I think. So anything that you want to tell folks on the call about how to follow the book tour any upcoming <laughs> events like anything that people well, book comes out one wine that you're headed towards that you can <laughs> book comes out next week on the 30th in the u.s and then the next day in the uk i'll just say one thing which is i am committing myself to if people want to critique the book or i'm sure there are smart counter arguments i've made a personal commitment that i'd like to respond to sort of all good faith counter arguments in a non-emotional way. Like, I, like what I really want to do is I just want to have a discussion about these topics. I'm not saying I'm right about everything, but I am sort of just, there's, there's so much tech debate and everything else, sort of ad hominem and dunking on Twitter and all this other stuff. So I really look forward to feedback and I will try my best to respond to it. And I'm like, I'm pretty accessible on social media and Twitter and Farcaster and other social media platforms. So anyways, I'm excited to see what people think. I hope they all like it. And I thank you, Stephen, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I think folks who, when the book arrives, they will really enjoy it. It's a great achievement and uh, your work has been inspiring for so long. I'm glad to have been a part of it. It's an early stage of the launch. Thanks everyone for joining. Well, thank you so much, Stephen.